If you have your Bibles, if you'd open with me now to the book of Romans chapter 12. And if you're joining us for the first time, God bless you. It's great to have you here. Here at Calvary Chapel, we make it a priority to go through the word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in what is called expositional teaching. And so that way you can learn the Bible and what the Bible has to say and find ways to apply it to your life. And we are currently in Romans chapter 12, picking up in verse 3 with a message entitled, Using Your Gifts. It says in verse 3, I say to you through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members don't have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for this time of the year, a reminder to us, Lord, of the greatest gift that's ever been given in the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we pray today that that which you have distributed to us, Lord, the giftings and the callings upon this local body of believers, Lord, that we would use those gifts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, it is filled with instruction and biblical doctrine. But as you move into the 12th chapter, we are now exhorted to practically apply all it is that we have learned. It's one thing to have knowledge intellectually, but it's something different to actually apply what it is that you've learned practically. In light of all that God's done for us, in view of all that he has provided through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul now says, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it means to be part of the church. First of all, it's a life of adoration wherein I present all that I am as a living sacrifice of worship to the one who purchased me with his own blood when he died for me on the cross. Jesus gave his life for me, and now I offer my life back to him. It's my reasonable service. It's a response to all that he's done. It's not only a life of adoration, but also it is a life of transformation. As I offer myself to the Lord for his will and his purposes, I'm no longer conformed to the pattern of this fallen world, but instead I'm being transformed. My mindset, my mentality is being aligned with God's word and God's will instead of my own. And as I yield to the Lord, what follows is his will actually being accomplished in and through my life for his glory. Jesus said that he had come to give life and that more abundantly. And the abundant life in Christ is discovered as I surrender all that I am to him. 
And the surrendering of all that I am to the Lord opens up new opportunities for me to serve the Lord. I come to this realization, folks, that I'm a part of something that's much bigger than just myself. I'm part of the church. I'm part of a local group of believers in my community, but I'm also a part of the church that reaches around the world globally. And knowing that I'm part of something bigger than myself, well, it causes me to think humbly, soberly, not too highly of myself, but thinking humbly of myself, as Paul says here. And that brings us, of course, now to verse 4, as the Apostle Paul begins to discuss the function of the church and the role that each of us is to fulfill as members of one another. And he begins by pointing out, number one, that within the church, there is both unity and there is diversity. Notice what it says in verse four. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members don't have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. When we think of the church, we oftentimes think of it in terms of the building or the location. I attend such and such church located at this particular place. But in reality, the church, it's not the building. It's the believers within the building. You're the church. It's you. It's me. Over the years, people have commented to me as they've driven past our church. Your church is so beautiful. And they're speaking of the architecture. It's such a beautiful building. And I will respond immediately by saying, you should see the people. That's where the beauty is, the body of Christ, the believers that are in that fellowship. We are the church. And folks, the purpose of the church is to glorify God. And the function of the church is to make disciples. It's to be a light in a dark world. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are citizens of heaven, the Bible says, and we're just simply passing through this temporary place. The scriptures refer to the church as a family, also as a flock, as the bride of Christ, as God's people, as saints. But one of the words that the apostle Paul was fond of using for the church was when he compared the church to a physical body. You know, you think about it, the Bible says concerning these bodies that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are created in the image of God. Think about what goes on in a physical body on any given day. It's estimated that your heart beats 103,689 times in a 24-hour period. Your blood, estimated, travels 168 million miles, pumping approximately four ounces of blood with every heartbeat. You breathe somewhere around 23,040 times. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You move 750 muscles. You probably didn't know you had that many. I didn't. And then all these brain cells, some of us have less than others. But nonetheless, there's a lot of activity that's going on inside of this physical body. So many diverse parts and functions all working together in unison. And listen, in the same way that the physical body has many members, the church has many members. 
And in the same way, the physical body has different parts of it that carry out different functions. So in the church, the different members of the body carry out different functions. There is unity in this physical body, but also there's diversity. And in the church, as a body, there is supposed to be unity, but there is also diversity. In writing to the church in Corinth, Paul used the same illustration of the church being a body. And he raised some important questions about the church as a body. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, for in fact, the body is not one member, but it's many. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Paul is emphasizing here the importance of unity within the body. One part of the body can't say to the other part of the body, I don't need you. I can be, I'm fine without you. We need each other. It's valuable. We're valuable to one another. Every part is important to the overall function of the body. And then in verse 18, he goes on to say, but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, well, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Again, the emphasis is that each part of a physical body is connected and unified to one another. And ultimately, it's unified to the head, to the brain, which provides direction on how the body is to properly function. In the same way, it is with the church. As the church of Jesus Christ, we're connected to one another. We're all different members, all different functions, but ultimately we are all to be unified in connection to the head. Who's the head of the body? The Bible tells us very clearly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, when it says Christ, Jesus, is also the head of the church, which is his body. As long as the church remains connected to Jesus, then the church will remain Unified, Even in the midst of diversity and all of the different functions that we have, I'm not the head of the church, folks. Jesus is the head of the church, and I need to stay connected to him as I stay connected to other members in the body of Christ. So there is unity and there is diversity, but there are also different gifts and abilities. Look at what it says in verse 6. Having then gifts that are differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Each member of the body of Christ, each individual, each person, although different from one another, has a purpose in the church. And the diversity of giftings that we have received from the Lord is just an act of his grace. He has given to us different gifts according to his grace, and we are to use these gifts for his glory. That's the ultimate purpose. I don't use the gifts for my own glory. I want to use the gifts that God's given me for his glory. Now, Paul looks at what some have classified here as the motivational gifts. You know that there are three listings of gifts in the scriptures. In Romans 12 here, as well as 1 Corinthians 12, and also in Ephesians chapter 4. Three listings of gifts. 
These are sometimes referred to as the motivational gifts, and they are broken down into two categories. The first set of gifts expound the Word of God. The second group that is listed here expand the work of God. First of all, expounding on the Word of God. He says in verse 6, if prophecy, this is one of the gifts, then let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation. The gifts that expound the word of God. The first is prophecy. Prophecy is a gift that declares the truth. Sometimes when we think of prophecy, we only think of it in a predictive sense. In the Old Testament, for example, the Lord raised up prophets who would predict things that would come, whether it was judgment or whether it was future blessing. They were prophesying, they were foretelling of future events that would come to pass. But in the New Testament context, and specifically here in this passage, it's not speaking so much of foretelling in a predictive sense, but more accurately, it's describing forthtelling, speaking forth the word of God with clarity and authority. Again, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he shared with them that it was his desire and he wished that every single person in the church had the gift of prophecy. He said, I wish that you all prophesied. Why do you suppose that he would say, I wish that the entire church had the gift of prophecy? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 14. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, why would he say that? Well, he tells us again. You keep reading verse 3. He says, because he who prophesies, this is what happens with prophecy, speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. That is the gift of prophecy in operation. There is Edification, that's building up. There's exhortation, that's encouragement. There's comfort. These are things that are found when the gift of prophecy is in operation. And Paul said the benefit of the entire church having the gift of prophecy, again, you just keep reading. You go down to the end of that chapter. This is what he says. Look at this. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, He's convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among them. Imagine a church like that. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Let's say today, you show up in the parking lot. Oh, wait, we don't have a parking lot. Let's say you look for a spot. John, what do you want for Christmas? A parking lot. That's it. But let's say you show up in in where we park. And one of our guys in the, in the orange vest is helping direct you to find a parking spot. A non-believer shows up and suddenly you get out of the car and he just starts speaking words of edification, of comfort, of exhortation. You're like, wow, that's weird. And, and the word of God is being spoken with clarity. And then you come into the courtyard and somebody greets you and they also are speaking forth the word. Then you take your child down to children's ministry and they're speaking forth, they're prophesying, they're speaking the word of God and exhortation and comfort and, and edification. And then you come up and somebody gives you a bulletin and they're speaking. And then you come in here and we worship and the worship team is leading us and they're speaking prophecy and exhortation. And then hopefully as you're sitting here and we open the word of God and, and what's coming forth from here is the gift of prophecy and operation. And by the end of the whole thing, the person says, 
God is definitely in that place. And they want to get right with the Lord. No wonder Paul said, I wish everybody in the church operated in that gift of prophecy. Would to God that that were the case. And so he says, listen, if you're going to prophesy, if this is the, the gift that God's given you, speaking forth the word of God, it's a gift that's to be in operation according to your faith. But then another gift is that of ministry. Ministry, as much as prophecy declares the truth, ministry depicts the truth. The word for ministry here is where we get our word deacon. You know, in the book of Acts chapter 7, you remember when the first deacons were selected to serve in the church? There was a need there for tables to be served. And so they chose those who were full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, a good reputation, and they served the tables. These deacons, it's the same word. It's a word for ministry. It means serving. It's active. And those people that just have the gift of ministry, they just jump in and serve, and, and you see the truth displayed or depicted by the way that they serve. You don't have to tell them. You don't have to beg them. You don't have to promise donuts if they come. You don't have to, you don't, there's no motivational things to get them to minister. They simply do it because it's a gift and they have a heart for it. And you just, it's a blessing when, you, when you're around those people in the body of Christ. Ministry, that, by the way, that's what ministry is. Sometimes people want to glorify ministry, but ministry is serving. It's serving. Jesus had to point this out to his disciples more than once as they were debating which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus sat down with his disciples in Mark chapter 9, and it says that he called the 12 over to him. And he said, whoever wants to be first must take the last place and be the servant of everyone else. That's so backwards in our thinking today. In the natural, in the worldly sense, if I'm going to be first, I'm going to be first, and I'm going to cut in front of you and your whole family. I don't care. I'm going to get to the front. Last? No, that's for losers. You know, I'm going to be in the front. I'm going to be a winner. And so we step on everybody, and we don't serve someone. People serve me. That's not how I operate. But Jesus said, in my kingdom, it's completely different. If you want to be first, you go last. If you want to be great, you serve. And of course, Jesus was the greatest example of that, modeled that in his life as well as in his death. Are you a servant? Someone said, you'll know you're a servant by the way you act when you're treated like one. Are you a servant? Do you minister on behalf of the Lord? But then there is the gift of teaching, and teaching defines the truth. He who teaches, let him teach. You remember James declared, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment from the Lord. But there is a need for teaching where you're able to explain things in such a way that people can understand them and what it is you're saying. Hopefully they grasp it and they can apply it. Teaching's a little bit different than prophecy because teaching instructs the mind. And prophecy stirs the heart and the will. Although they're closely connected, that one of the main roles of the pastor is to be teaching the word of God. I think pastor, teacher, they, they go together. It's important. Jesus told Peter to feed the flock, to tend the flock, to care for it. And, and with that, the primary role of the pastor is to teach people God's word. You have to operate in that gift of teaching. The message of Jesus has to be explained as well as proclaimed. You think about the ministry of Jesus. It says that he went everywhere 
preaching and teaching. Because you can instruct people on what to do and how to do it, but they also have to be exhorted and encouraged to carry it out. Preaching and teaching, I think, goes well together. And the teaching ministry is not just for the pastor. It's children's ministry, women's ministry. I mean, there's all different ways in which God gives that gift of teaching. But it's important in the body of Christ. You remember Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that he was to find faithful men who he could instruct so that they could teach others. In the Great Commission, Jesus said to go out and teach people how to be disciples. And so there's a need for teaching. But then there's another gift exhortation. Exhortation develops the truth. He who exhorts in exhortation, the idea is one who comes alongside of another person and encourages them, helps them develop the truth to strengthen the hands of those who hang down. It's the gift of exhortation is, is not pounding somebody into the pavement. It's helping them up off the pavement and helping them to walk once again. It's, it's the gift of exhortation. And some people, they just operate. You can just see it. They just, they have the gift of exhortation. When they say something, it's like, man, I'm, I'm motivated to go do something because, because they have that gift of exhortation. It's encouraging. And boy, I don't, I don't think we are, have a shortage of people that need to be encouraged today. And we encourage people with the gift of exhortation. We come alongside of them and we, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and we help people along with the gift of exhortation. It's so important in the body of Christ. I think of when Paul exhorted Timothy to stir up the gift of God that was within him. So these are the gifts that explain, expound rather, the word of God. But then... There are another list of giftings here in the motivational gifts that expand, help expand the work of the Lord. Three gifts that Paul mentions here have to do with furthering the gospel. First of all, he says in verse eight, he who gives, notice this, he who gives with liberality. It's a word that means simplicity. Giving helps extend and expand the work of God. And it's to be done in such a way that it doesn't draw attention to the individual, but it draws attention to the Lord. You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he was exhorting his disciples as to how they were to carry out their charitable deeds, their giving. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Uh, he talked about not sounding a trumpet or making a big display of it. What are you doing? Just giving, just giving, nothing. Just giving to the Lord. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Jesus looks more at how a person gives, even beyond what they give, the heart behind it, the sacrifice within it, giving financially. The Bible does say that God loves a cheerful giver. The word is hilarious. You should be able to give to the Lord with a smile on your face. And let me say this to you. If you can't, if it's grudgingly, oh man, why, can I, why do they always have somebody come by and pass that? Ah, oh, then listen, do yourself, a, do yourself a favor and keep it because it's not going to do you any good. Here at Calvary Chapel, listen carefully. If you're new here, this will be, may come as a surprise to you. If you've been here a while, you get it. You'll never see anybody from this platform twisting anybody's arm to say, man, guys, you need to 
dig deep. In fact, we're going to take a third offering. Um, and if the ushers could lock the doors uh, and make sure. And I feel the Lord telling me, there's somebody here. No gift is too small. And there is definitely no gift that's too big. You know, and, you know you're not going to see those kinds of, of things happen because we just, we just don't do that. Um, the only time we really discuss or teach on the subject of giving is when we come to it in the Bible. But when we come to it in the Bible, we give explanation. Giving is as much of an act of worship as singing is an act of worship, as serving is an act of worship. And oftentimes, when the subject of giving comes up, it's interesting how uncomfortable people will appear from this side of things. People just start moving and just, you know, it's just an interesting thing about that. They feel something deep in their back pocket. You know, it's just, I don't know. It's just uncomfortable, but it shouldn't be. If you understand that everything that you have, everything that I possess is a gift from God, it's not really mine. I would, I would have no opportunity, no ability, if not for the grace of God in my life. And I realize um, that it's all his. And I'm amazed at what he allows me to keep. Over the years, people have asked me, Pastor John, what do you think about tithing? What do you think about this? I, I, just, I just look at what the Bible says. Tithing was an Old Testament principle, by the way. A 10% of, of everything that you had was to be given to the Lord. And actually, it was beyond that at certain times of the year. You can do the math in the Old Testament. That was under the law. Under grace, what are we supposed to give? That's something you need to ask the Holy Spirit to show you and, and to reveal to you. But there are principles as it relates to giving that are given in the word of God. For example, in the early church, we find that it was consistent, that it was a priority. We also find that it was voluntary, that it was done generously, that it was done humbly, without pretense, except in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, and you know what happened to them. But it was also beneficial to the one who gave. And here's why. Because as they were investing in the kingdom of God, any fruit that came as a result of the ministry that took place was added to their account. Paul, you remember saying, I don't seek the gift. That's not what I'm, I'm after. I'm after the fruit that will be to your account as you give, as you invest in the kingdom of God. And the reality is, folks, we invest today in so many things that have no eternal significance whatsoever. I tell you, it was a very humbling thing, and, and it was good. As we traveled to Thailand, as we went to home visits, that was probably the most um, humbling and uh, just where you go into these, if you want to call it a house, you can call it that. But from any kind of standards here, it would not be a house, more like a shack. And you walk into these little houses that are one room and they house generations in, in one spot and you step on the bamboo floor and it starts to cave in and you see the children and you see the, and, and you just realize, wow, Lord, these people, they're, they're farming a half acre that was just washed out and they're not sure if they're going to have enough food. You have a single mother whose husband left and she has two children and she works from eight in the morning till eight at night selling vegetables 
seven days a week to provide for her family. You just, you, it kind of gives you perspective and you realize how important it is to invest in the kingdom of God. All that we have is a gift from God. I was thinking about George Mueller. Maybe you've read about him. He started many orphanages in England and it was said that he handled during his life some $8 million or so passed through his hands, which was a lot of money back then and still is today. But when he died, it says that he was, only, he was worth less than $1,000. I mean, it just, it just went through his hands and God just used him in that way. He realized that it was all on loan from the Lord. And so when you have those people who are generous in giving, they make a tremendous impact in the body of Christ. And then he adds, also those who lead, verse eight, with diligence. Those who lead in any capacity should be diligent, not idle. Leadership requires diligence if you're going to be an effective leader. Um, it's not being a tyrant as a leader. You will respect me. It's being a servant as a leader. If you lead in your home, if you lead at your job, if you lead at your school, if you lead wherever it is that God has you, in some capacity, we all have an, a sphere of influence where we're leading people. The question is, where are we leading them? And are we being diligent in our leadership? Or have we become slack in our leadership? Idle, just kind of put it on cruise and not really investing diligently. To be an effective leader, I think first and foremost, you have to be a good follower a follower of Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, then you'll be able to lead other people. But are you diligent in your leadership? This is important in the body of Christ. People that are leading and a good example, there's consistency. But also in verse eight, he says, here's another gift. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy. Those people in the body of Christ that have a special place in their heart for the hurting. They just, they have the gift of mercy. You might look at a situation and go, I don't want to touch that. And they're like, how can I minister to that need? They're just so merciful. You just have a gift of mercy. Now the Bible does say that we've been shown mercy and we ought to be merciful because we've been on the receiving end of God's mercy. But then there are people who actually have a gift. It is a it is a gift. They are so merciful and so compassionate and, and they just, you can see it in everything that they do. That's a gift that the body of Christ needs. Those that have mercy. And so it's to be done with cheerfulness, with joy. And those who have the gift usually do. Now, this is the church functioning as a healthy body, using its gifts in unity for the glory of God, so much can be accomplished. But this is the question. We're almost through. Here it is. People say, well, what is my gift? How do I know which one I have? Do I have more than one? You might. How do I know what, what's my gift in this particular listing? Well, let me give you an example. I don't think this is the best example, but maybe it'll help you think through it, pray through it. First and foremost, you need to pray and ask the Lord, Lord, show me what my gift is. And let me see that. And he'll show you. But I would say, practically speaking, for a moment, let's say during the service now, I'm getting a little parched. I mean, not literally, but for the example. And so what happens is we, we grab one of the kids and they're going to bring me a cup of water. 
They're going to walk through the doors. They're going to come down the aisle. They're going to bring me a glass of water. And as they're walking down the aisle, they're getting closer. I'm about to get there. And, oh, they tripped. They dropped the water. It was a glass uh, you know, cup, so it just, it broke everywhere. It was a gla- it just shattered waters everywhere. The kid is down on his face. He doesn't know what, he's just there, and, I, and I'm still parched. Um, he's not here, and so what happens? Well, you respond, and one of you responds in the gift of prophecy. You know, the Bible does say, even though a righteous man falls seven times, the Lord will raise him back up again. You just, man, the word is just right there. It's a word of prophecy. (laughs) Speaking forth the word of God with clarity and authority. You identified what just happened. He fell, but he can rise again. We serve the God of the resurrection. You know what? You just identify it with prophecy. But then, it'd be another of you. You see this person who has fallen down, and you go into ministry. Where's the broom? Where's the towel? How do I, hey, don't step on the glass. I'm going to get that in your foot. You know, you are just immediately, you go into serving. Just, you, you meet the need right there. You're ministering. And then there's other of you who maybe you'd say, you know what? Let me, let me explain something to you. Let me teach you. That. Now listen, when you carry a glass, it's, remember that there's so much condensation here and you, it's always good. Don't just, you know, you got to really grab hold of that thing and watch where you're walking. Don't fill it up too far. You one of the, and you are teaching how to carry a glass of water properly. And you're very good at your instructing. And then you have another person who has the gift of exhortation. Hey, it's all right. Don't, hey, listen, we all fall. Don't, hey, don't stay down there. Don't, hey, no, no, no. You're not a victim. No, no, you come on. You get up. Let's go. You can do this. Come on. You can get another glass. Let's try it again from the top. Come on. God's with you. You can do it. Let's go. Come on. He's like, all right. I'll do it. You know, you have the gift of exhortation. And it's just, he's encouraged. He's going to try again. But then you have somebody who sees the, what's happened and they have the gift of giving. You know what? How much did that glass cost? I, I don't mind, you know, who do I make this out to? Because we need another glass of water. Uh, and you just, you just go in. You're just, just you want to meet the need. You jump right in in giving. And then you have those who, maybe it's not so much the giving part of it, but they, they want to lead. All right, here's, here's how we're going to do this. I want you to get behind me. And I want you to, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try this again, but follow my lead. Watch what I do. Take, a, take your right step. Okay, take your left. Now follow me. I'm going to lead you how to carry this glass of water in there. And then there are those who see the child that's fallen, the glass that's broken, and you have the gift of mercy. You say, you know what? Hey, listen, it's all right. You know, we all, we all fall sometimes. It's okay. You, you know what? It happens to a lot of people. Come, it's going to be all right. No, dry, you don't have to cry. It's okay. Come on. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to show you how to do it. Come on. You know, and you just have this amazing gift of mercy. Maybe you have a combination of those gifts. But this is how they're to operate in the body of Christ. Very practical, but supernatural at the same time when you have those giftings. But there is one final element that is necessary to all these gifts. And if if you don't have this, it doesn't matter how well you teach. It doesn't matter how diligent you are in leadership. It doesn't matter how much mercy you show or how much you're willing to give. If you don't, if, if we don't have this one thing, the rest of it doesn't matter. And that one thing, you know what it is? It's anyone? 
Wow. You guys are right on. Love. That's what it is. It's love. Look at the very next verse as we conclude. It says, let love be without hypocrisy. What is the one thing that will keep the church united in the midst of such diversity, in the midst of different upbringings and different personalities and idiosyncrasies all? I mean, how, what, what brings this group together? It's Jesus. It's the love of God. The Bible does say that God is love in his nature. It's who he is. Furthermore, that God's love among us is the defining characteristic of a disciple. Jesus said, the world will know that you're my disciple by the love that you have for one another. Furthermore, the Bible says that love is the greatest gift of all. In 1 Corinthians 13, you can speak prophetically. You can give your body to be burned. You, you can do all kinds of things. But if you don't have love, it's like noise to heaven, like a clanging cymbal, sounding brass. It's irritating. Without love, it doesn't matter. And also, Love is to be the constraining, compelling motivation for service. Love is what's to motivate us to serve in the way that we do. It has to be love. It's not for the praise of man. It's for the glory of God. It's the love of God, Paul said, that constrains me. The Bible says those that do not love do not know God. The Bible says Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus took it a step further and said, I say to you, love your enemies. This is what makes the body work. This is the, if there was lifeblood, it's, it's the blood of Christ and it's the love of Christ that causes this body to stay connected and united to the head, receiving its function, properly working Love. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. May the Lord pour out in greater measure his love upon this body of believers that the world might see that we belong to Jesus. And may we use our gifts, not for our glory, but for his. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for the grace that you've given to us in the distribution of different giftings and how they are to operate with unity and in harmony with one another, all connected to, to you, Lord. Father, I pray for this local community of believers here. God, that we would operate according to the scriptures, Lord, as it says here. Lord, that your love would be something that would cover a multitude of faults or a multitude of, of differences or things that really don't matter, Lord. Lord, teach us to love, to follow your command. 
Lord, I pray if there are any here today in our midst who've never experienced the love of God in their own life, they don't understand that Jesus gave everything. God so loved them that he died and rose again. I pray that they would respond to the gospel. Receive your love and be changed for now and throughout eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with us this morning? It's amazing that we are only a few days away from Thanksgiving. It seemed like it came so quickly this year. But for many of us, you have the opportunity to gather with friends and family, some of which don't know Christ. And I want to encourage you to leverage every opportunity you have to share of what you're thankful for. And maybe you even propose to those at the table, hey, why don't we go around and say what we're thankful for? I'll start. I'm thankful for Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross, his forgiveness of my sins, his resurrection from the dead. Raise your hand if you want to get saved at this table right now. Well, you know, something like that. Come forward. I mean, wait, wait. But who knows? I would just take that opportunity to to plant the seed. And what's amazing for us if you're a Christian here today, is that for us, we we know this better than anybody else. It's not Thanksgiving, although it is Thanksgiving, this one day a year that we recognize, but but for us, it's every day. It's thanksgiving. We live with thankfulness and gratitude because of all all that Christ has done. We of all people should be the most thankful. So I pray that our relatives, our friends, people we come in contact with would see that. If you need prayer today, I encourage you to come up after the service. Folks would love to pray with you. That's why we're here, to minister to any needs that you might have. If not, look forward to seeing you. If you can join us Wednesday night for our special Thanksgiving Eve service. And then, of course, the 5K. I think it's the fifth annual, maybe. Fifth annual Thanksgiving Day 5K. It's a blast. It's so much fun. And I always look forward to that, starting out the day. And I feel better about what I'm going to eat later that day when I attend. So God bless you guys. We love you. It's good to, good to be home. Let's close in the chorus, shall we?